Well, good morning, everyone. If you'd like and you have a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2 in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, the words will be up on the screen as well. So if you didn't bring a Bible, you won't be left out. Uh, Let's stand together this morning in honor of God's word. We'll read his word together. We'll pray and then we'll get started. So it says here in Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1, going down to verse 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." And raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages that come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to say thank you for the great love with which you've showed us and for your grace poured out upon your people and all the earth. Lord, help us this morning just to get a sliver of your grace, just to get a foretaste, just a little taste of your infinite grace. Lord, that it might leave us changed forever. And so come, Holy Spirit, burn in us this morning. Lord, let us hear with our ears and let us speak with words that you provide. And we pray it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. First of all, I just want to affirm that grace is amazing. For some, grace is fairly common. It's something that we say before we eat. Who's going to say grace? Or perhaps a grace period that we have on our credit cards or mortgages, or something of that sort, where there's this little period of grace where we know we're late, but grace is being given to us. Or the whole idea of gratuity, which, which comes from this word grace as well, that we give a little bit more beyond what's obligated. Or in a negative sense, there's a such thing as disgrace. Someone who's lost grace or lost favor. Or as our government would say for those that they have blacklisted, not allowing to come into the country for whatever reason, that they are persona non grata, or person without grace, or a person without favor. For others, grace is much more profound than this, like the Apostle Paul. He saw himself as unqualified and undeserving. He said to Timothy, I am the foremost of all sinners. In another place, he recalls, we are the dregs of all things. It's the scum of the world. These two ideas are very much the same. First of all, dregs you know is the bottom of the barrel, that part that settles down to the bottom of the the wine barrel, the stuff that's skimmed off. And the Uh, Scum is just filth that needs to be swept up and cleaned away. Paul is saying both these things as an analogy of his life, the foremost of all sinners, the dregs of the world and the scum of the earth. He says in another place, I am not fit to be an apostle because I persecuted the church, ravishing the church, beating, imprisoning, and blaspheming. 
But on the way to Damascus one day, Christ met Paul. And his life was forever changed. He intervened in a miraculous way, and Paul was transformed. And from that point, he became one of Christ's most ardent supporters. Preached the word all over the then known world. Wrote more New Testament books than any other. And left the life-changing gospel of grace planted well in believers' hearts. Paul says later in his life, by the grace of God, I am what I am. You see, Paul was giving all the glory to God. He understood all that he had done in his salvation, all that he had done in his life, and all they would ever do for all eternity was based on God's grace. That it wasn't because of men promoting him, it wasn't because of his education, it wasn't because of his breeding. It was because of the grace of God in his life. This unmerited, undeserved favor that God gives. That's how the Apostle Paul saw grace. But there have been others. Like Lewis Sperry Schaefer, who founded Dallas Theological Seminary in 1924. Today, Dallas Theological Seminary is likely one of the top five seminaries in the whole world. He founded Young Life, this ministry which Billy Graham became a part of later in life and which he flourished and grew, grew under. He was instrumental in the creation of the living Bible. He had a tremendous and direct influence on these lives. Maybe you've heard of them. Howard Hendricks, Dwight Pentecost, Charles Ryrie, J. Vernon McGee, and Chuck Swindoll. He wrote a complete systematic theology of the entire Bible and held three doctoral degrees. At his death, it's reported that he said this, I'm only now beginning to understand what grace is all about. Here's another, perhaps you've heard of him, John Newton. John Newton lost his very first job because of his unsettled behavior and impatience of restraint. At age 11, he went on his first uh, sailing uh, job across the seas and was eventually hired uh, by, the, by the Navy and then ultimately deserted. Caught, put in irons, flogged, and imprisoned. At one point, he was finally traded to a slave ship where he spent the remainder of his, his um, uh, work on the, on the high seas. Uh, on this slave ship, you might know, uh, called the Greyhound, sailing out of Liverpool in 1747 on its return trip to London. Encountered a great storm, and in the midst of that, John Newton turned to Christ, and his life was transformed. Instead of running a slave ship, now he became an assistant to William Wilberforce in overcoming slavery in Europe. And of course, you might know, it was John Newton who wrote probably the most famous hymn of all time, Amazing Grace. God had changed his life, and he owed it all to grace, this unmerited, undeserved favor. So grace is amazing, but the question remains, what's so amazing about it? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because here in Ephesians chapter 1, if we just go back just a chapter, it says this in verse 5, reading just a few verses here. He predestines, predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. I think what is so amazing about grace can be found in these three words, found in these, this passage I just read to you. First of all, that it is free. Secondly, that it is rich. And thirdly, that it is lavish. 
It is free, it is rich, it is lavish. So let's look first at this idea of grace being free. Grace is understood as undeserved favor. I love the acrostic of grace that says, God's riches at Christ's expense. Perhaps you've heard of that. But someone else has said, grace is unmerited divine assistance given to all humans. Or here's another one. Grace is free, sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. Or here's another one. Grace is favor, the free, undeserved help that God gives. One more. Grace is a spontaneous gift from God to people, generous and free, totally unexpected and totally undeserved. We see free grace in our salvation. In the passage I read to you in Ephesians chapter 2, it says in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is free in this sense that it is not of ourselves. That this is something that God has done on our behalf, unmerited and undeserved in our life. In fact, I would go as far as to say that even the faith to believe him for salvation has come from him. In fact, theologians call this total depravity. Total depravity, not that we're as depraved as we can be, but this depravity goes to every area of our lives. Like Paul says, there is none who does right, not even one. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. That there, that there is one, the prince of this air, that has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. There is really no way we can turn to the Lord unless the Lord reveals himself to us. Titus 2.11 says, the grace that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Meaning that because of God's grace, he's opened the eyes of men now that they can respond to the Lord and choose him. But even that ability to respond was placed there by him, that it was given by him, that we are depraved, that we are away from him, that we are looking the other way. And yet God came looking for us. God came on his rescue mission looking for us. That's the free nature of grace. That we were away from him. It says here, if you read on a little farther down in Ephesians 2, that we were separate from Christ, strangers to the promises, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, without God and without hope. But God, being rich in mercy, And loving us with a great love, sent his son into the world to save us from ourselves and the wrath to come. It is a free gift, freely given while we were still dead in our transgressions. We don't deserve it, and yet God has given it to us. Let me just say as well here that God is not forced to pour out his grace, that he is not required to give out his grace. This is something that he chose to do, and neither are we entitled to his grace. This is something that he has done out of his godly prerogatives, pouring out grace upon his people. So we see free grace first of all, in salvation. But we also see free grace in sanctification. That's our growing to be Christ-like. Like Paul said to the Romans that we are becoming that image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or like he said to the Ephesians a little bit later here in Ephesians that we're growing into that measure of the stature of the Lord Jesus Christ. An amazing thing in and of itself. But know too that this is by his grace. Reading on a little bit farther, just, well, in fact, in the verses we read in verse 10, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in him. He's saying a couple of things here. First of all, that we are his workmanship, that he's working in us. 
The Bible says in a different place, in Philippians, it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work. First of all, to give you the willingness to do the right thing, but also to work it out in your life. Yes, there is a cooperation there, but God often works even when we're not cooperating. Even when we're uncooperative, God is still working in our lives. So this first part is that workmanship that he's doing in our lives, that molding, that shaping in our lives. My son Dave gave me a a mallet that he had crafted for Christmas. And so this mallet, I'm not sure, I almost brought it today. I'm I'm not sure the exact wood that it's made of, but it's just, it's beautiful. And the handles shaped uh, well, and the, the shaping, you can tell that there was real craftsmanship on the shaping. The number of, of uh, woods were brought together, and it's just a beautiful piece of wood. I've been working on some cabinets at our house. Started them out of four by eight sheets of plywood. Crafted them into the carcasses of the, of the bookshelves and then made the shelves for those and, and cut and joined and um, worked on them. And finally, the final stages was a, was a light sanding and then patching the, the nail holes and then finally the paint. Those shelves started with just a hunk of wood. But now they're something which I consider beautiful. That's how God, by his grace, works in our lives. That he's working on us every day. He's shaping us every day by his grace. He wouldn't have to. He could leave it all up to us, you know, working hard and trying to become better. But he's working on us. He's shaping us. We are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece. But the second part of this is this, is that he's also made works for us to walk in. That he's, all, he's already created those good works for us to walk in. So first of all, he's doing a workmanship within us, but then he's also prepared these works that we could walk in them. Guys, do you see how this is all grace and all free? That really there's little that we do. God is working in us by his free grace. So we see grace in... Free grace in salvation, we see free grace in sanctification, but we also see it in the gifts of the Spirit. When we read about the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, it's referred to as the charismata, the charismata. Charis is, our, is the Greek word for our word grace, and mata is the word gift, that these are grace gifts. You don't earn them. You don't deserve them. They're just given as a gift. So the Corinthians love these gifts, which they should. But they were just a little bit out of control. And so Paul writes them, this is First and Second Corinthians, he writes them to kind of bring some boundaries to these gifts. You know, there's, there's all this speaking in tongues, and finally he says, you know what? Let it be at the most two that speak in tongues, and then let it be interpreted at the most three. And then he puts some parameters around the prophetic word and those sort of things, and he says, let all things be done in order. But before he says any of that, He's talking to them about the, the little bit of arrogancy that's rise, that has rose up within them because they have these charismata, they have these grace gifts. And he asks them this penetrating question. Let me ask you, what do you have that you have not received? What do you have that hasn't been freely given to you? Guys, that is a penetrating question. I mean, we could ask that almost of any area in our lives. The Bible says this, that all good gifts come from above. I tend to think that every good thing in our life has its root in God's grace and God's blessing. 
that God has poured out his blessing. We walk in a common grace that, that God just has upon the earth, but we walk in a special grace as well. And that everything good I have is because of God's grace. That's why I pause before I eat and I say grace or give thanks because I realize it's because of God's provision in my life. Without him, I wouldn't be able to do it. I have health so I can work. I have a mind. It's going, but I still have a mind. I have a mind and I have physical uh, health, I guess, uh, and I can do these things. God has provided in a number of different ways and God protects my resources as well. And I owe this all to his grace and his kindness, this, this unmerited favor. Why has God shown so much favor? Not because we're so great, although I think you guys are great. Not because we're so great, but because he loved us. Because he loves us. So we see grace as absolutely free. Anything mixed with grace, it is no longer grace. Grace, by definition, is undeserved favor. If I mix something with that, now it's, it's a little bit deserved. It's like Paul says to the Romans in another place, and I, I'm going to quote this terribly, I know, but he says, whoever works for a wage, then, then that's not, that's grace. That's something that's owed him, okay? So we work for grace. We empty it of its power. It's like the Galatians. Paul writes and chastises them and says, you have fallen from grace because they wanted to be circumcised as part of their salvation, you have fallen from grace. Those are some harsh words. You have fallen from grace. Anything mixed with grace is no longer grace. Grace has to be absolutely free. Not based on what we've done or haven't done. Undeserved, unexpected, unqualified. Free. Grace is free. Secondly, grace is rich. Or as Peter says in 1 Peter 4.10, manifold or multifaceted or varied. It is not only rich in depth, it is rich in breadth in this sense. That God's grace covers numerous areas. 131 times in the New Testament, grace is mentioned. I think we can boil it down to these three categories, or at least for today we can boil it down to these three categories. God gives us grace to be. Grace to be. Paul again, for by the grace of God, I am what I am. God has wrought this in my life. This isn't based on what people have done for me. This isn't based on my hard work. This isn't based on anything except God's grace. I am what I am because of the grace of God. Some think that they are self-made men or self-made people. I would take objection with that. I would say we cannot be self-made. It has to be God's grace. Without God's grace, if God was to remove his grace in a moment, I think we would turn to dust. So his grace is exceedingly rich. It's grace to be it's also grace to stand. Paul's saying to the Romans, this grace in which I stand and his grace is sufficient for me. No matter what I go through, I know God's favor is for me. This undeserved favor is for me. And most of the time, that's enough. Most of the time, that's enough because I know God is for me. If he is for me, who can really be against me? Grace to be, grace to stand, and grace to do. Paul says that he labors according to the grace that was given him. And Stephen, ministering full of grace and power, was performing great wonders along with many, many, many other verses. I just want to demonstrate that grace is exceedingly rich and exceedingly broad. That God's grace permeates to every area of our life and every area of this planet that he has given us favor, his creation, because he loves us. So grace is, first of all, free. Secondly, rich. 
And then last of all, grace is extravagantly lavish. God's grace is extravagantly lavish. 1 John 1.16 says, For his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. This idea that John is communicating here in these words, grace upon grace, is taken from an Old Testament uh, prophetic word that talked about God's provision uh, becoming so abundant that the, that the harvesters would overtake the planters or, or vice versa, that, that harvesting would be so abundant that they would still be harvesting when it came time to plant again. It's grace upon grace. It's like, it's like the waves coming into the shore, just one after another, just grace after grace after grace after grace. This is the extravagant, lavish grace of God. The Amplified Bible translates this verse this way. For out of his, out of his fullness or out of his abundance, we have all received one grace after another and spiritual blessing upon spiritual blessing and even favor upon favor and gift heaped upon gift. That is the lavishness of God's grace. Let me, let me, let me give you an example in another way. Karen Blixen was a popular writer. You might have seen one of her uh, films that was made of her story called Out of Africa. From 1914 to about the early 1930s, she took care of this plantation farm in Africa. When she returned to Europe after that time, she wrote a short story which also became a movie called Babette's Feast. Babette's Feast. Let me tell you just a little bit about that story if you're not familiar. On the coast of Denmark, there was this small town made up mostly of family and extended family members. They were Lutherans, and they were committed Lutherans. The pastor, which oversaw the gray-bearded pastor, which oversaw the whole uh, small town, had two beautiful daughters, and as hard as they tried to hide it, they could not. One's name was... Martina, named after Martin Luther. The other's name was Philippa, named after Philip Melanchthon, uh, Martin Luther's disciple. So we have Martina and uh, Philippa, the two beautiful daughters of this pastor. Well, because they were so beautiful, there were suitors coming to their door often, oftentimes from nearby towns. One of those suitors was a cavalry officer that came for one of, the, one of the daughters. But something had happened when they were together. They got a little too close, and the daughter thought, nope, this isn't what the Lord has for me, so she sent him packing. Another one met a man, Achilles Pe Pepe, Achilles Pepe from uh, France. He came to this small town in Denmark, found this beautiful daughter, but also realized not only was she beautiful, but she had a voice like a nightingale. He said, if you come to France with me, I could make you the star of France. You would be, you would be one of the greatest singers in France. But during one encounter, they brushed a little too closely to each other, and she decided, this isn't what the Lord has for me, and turned him away. Fifteen years later, there's a knock on their door. Their dad has passed away. They're trying to keep the mission alive there in that little, small fishing village. And they open the door, and in falls across the threshold a woman soaking wet from the storm. And as they're helping her to a chair, she hands them a note. And it's from Achilles Pepe. He's saying, this woman's husband and children have been killed in the Civil War in France. I'm sending her to you that you could hide her. People are looking for her life. And so they took her in. And she became their housekeeper and their cook. But unfortunately, the only thing that they ever had to cook was cod, 
and something they called gruel. It sounds as bad as it was, I think. Gruel was simply boiled bread with a dash of ale added to it, you know? So it was, a, it was a soupy bread and cod. That was their meal that they would have every day, day in, day out, cod and gruel, cod and gruel, cod and gruel. Eleven more years pass, and uh, Babette uh, hears of an inheritance or lottery winnings that are now hers. 10,000 francs. And although the two sisters were very happy for Babette, they felt like now she will be leaving. She will no longer be cooking for us. She will no longer be um, cleaning for us. And now she's going to go. So they tried to be happy for her, but on the inside, they just felt like this is too bad that this has to happen. Several days later, Babette comes to the sisters and says, you have been so kind to me these past many years. Would you give me one favor? Can I ask one favor from you? Would you give me this one favor? The sisters looked at each other and said, said yes, we will give you this one favor. She says, let me cook you a real meal. And the sisters look at each other and they're like, why not? So she takes her inheritance, and she starts to buy food for this meal. They invite the whole town, now only 11 people. They invite the whole town to this meal, but ships begin to dock on the shore, unloading all kinds of food from faraway places. Uh, Turtles are getting off. Birds are getting off. Uh, The whole head of cattle are getting off. All these, all these um, uh, foods are getting off and Babette's kitchen now is just overflowing with food. And so for the next few weeks she's preparing this meal for the little town that is used to eating cod and gruel. So on the night of the feast they all gather together and they have such a great time. They're all a little bit stiff except for one visitor that comes. It was the suitor of one of the ladies. And he comes and joins joins with them. And as they begin to celebrate, he was the most rambunctious and uh, loudest one of them all, enjoying all the food and commenting on all the food. And the 11 people of the the town were just kind of quiet, not saying much of anything. And he was going on and on about how great the food was and what a great night it it was. And of course, champagne was flowing and it was just a beautiful night. And soon, the townspeople began to be involved as well. And they began to enjoy themselves. And soon, it was a party, a lavish party that had been thrown. The last scene of the book is this. Babette is back in her kitchen, or the sister's kitchen, back in her kitchen, looking as disheveled as the night she arrived. The pots and pans are all piled up around her, and they have just had one of the greatest celebrations. And one of the sisters says says to Babette, she says, uh, well, now you probably need to leave and go back to France. She says, well, I can't. I spent all the money on this meal. She had given everything she had for this family. She had given everything. Turns out she was a famous chef in France that was, ca- that was uh, caused to have to leave France. And she, she made them this beautiful meal. And the story ends with her staying with the family. Guys, I feel like sometimes... We're expecting cod and gruel. And God has a lavish feast for us. That he has much, much more than what we have settled for. He has grace upon grace, more grace and more grace for his people. But we've settled for something too small. Here's another picture of lavish grace. This is Mephibosheth. In the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 9. Some of you will remember Mephibosheth, as hard as his name is, he's a, he's a great character. Mephibosheth was the 
grandson of Saul, the son of Jonathan, David's friend. And when David and his military moved into Jerusalem, the previous regime scattered. I mean, they just ran. Saul's family just just ran away. A couple chapters earlier, we hear what happened when uh, the maid, along with Mephibosheth, was fleeing, fell, and Mephibosheth became crippled in in his feet. And so he could no longer walk. David, after he comes into town and things settle down, he says to his, uh, um, he says to his, uh, um, uh, not maid, but, but attendant or whatever there in the temple, Ziba, he says to Ziba, is there anyone in Saul's house that I can show mercy to? I just love the way that's worded. <laughs> is there anyone Not is there anyone beautiful or is there anyone strong or is there anyone important? Is there anyone, you know, is there anyone uh, influential? None of that. Simply this. Is there anyone who I can show mercy to? And Ziba, it almost seems kind of sheepishly responds, well, there is this one person It's almost like he's apologizing. You wouldn't really be interested in Mephibosheth because he's lame in his feet. And David says, perfect, bring him in, bring him in. And Mephibosheth comes to David and he says, he says to David, why are you treating me this way? I am but a dog. And David says, oh no, you're not. I am gonna pour out a blessing upon you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. And this is the promise that I'm going to restore to you all that Saul had. I'm going to restore to you all that your, your, your grandfather had. All that Saul had, Saul was the king. I'm restoring that back to you. I'm restoring all those prophets back to you. I'm restoring the lands back to you. You're, you're getting all the lands back to you. And here's the last thing. You will eat at my table until the end of your life. You'll eat at my table. Guys, I can't help but get this picture in my mind every time I think of Mephibosheth eating at the king's temple or eating at the king's table. I mean, here are these majestic rulers sitting around the table. We have Amnon, that guy. (laughs) Sitting at the table, we have Tamar sitting at the table. We have Solomon sitting at the table. We have uh, the, the family, the extended family of David all around the table. I mean, these are classy people. And then here comes Mephibosheth. Clumpity, 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 clumpity. Pulls himself up into his chair and covers his legs with the tablecloth. We want to hide our need for grace, but the fact of the matter is we all need it. That was the grace that David showed Mephibosheth. Grace undeserved. Grace that was unprepared for. Grace that was unexpected. Grace poured out a, a upon Mephibosheth, not that he was qualified, but just because David loved his father. Here's one last story. So in 1972, Jeffrey Dahmer started a murder spree that lasted, 1975, started a murder spree that lasted over the next seven years until 19, no, much longer than that, lasted until from 1975 to 1992, many, many years. During that time, he seduced, murdered, dismembered, and cannibalized 17 men and boys. Finally caught in 1992, went to prison in, I think, 1993, and was um, killed by a, or uh, beaten to death by a fellow inmate in 1994. 
if anybody is undeserving of grace, it would be Jeffrey Dahmer. So some years ago, I got this note from a person that goes to church here. In fact, they're here today. This is the note that they handed me. Three of us in this room on three occasions met, spoke, and shook hands with Jeffrey Dahmer during the times of prison ministry, including 15 days before he was killed. Since then, I saw him on an unpublicized interview. He told the reporter that even after all of the horrible things that he had done, I know that the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ has made it possible for me to be forgiven. I've told this, now back to the note, I've told this to non-Christians who did not understand and did not want to hear that it was even possible. But it is. And based upon this, I expect to see him in heaven. And then finishes his note, this is lavish grace. So this leaves us with the question, how do we receive lavish grace? This lavish grace is available for us. Paul says this, he says, you did not receive the grace of God in vain. So we know that we have to receive it. We know that it is available to us, but how do we receive it? I think in the same way that we come to the Lord, first of all, it's by faith that we believe by faith, that we believe that he has something good and something better for us. And so we believe that. We believe that he, uh, he's a rewarder of those that, that love him. But I think we also need humility. I think we also need humility. Not only faith, but humility. I think this is why faith sometimes is so hard. I mean, uh, receiving grace is so hard. I have, I have a guy in my life, his name's Don. I only know Don because he drives by my house every once in a while and stops and talks to me. So we've developed this relationship. He's probably stopped and talked to me uh, two dozen times over the last couple, couple years or few years. We always end up talking about the Lord Guys, how this started, I can't remember, but he was just passing by in his truck. I've never seen the guy out of his truck. He's probably paralyzed. I don't know, you know. (laughs) He just pulls up in his truck, and we talk at his window, and then he goes, and this probably happened, this probably happened two dozen times. This summer, uh, or this winter, after two large snowfalls, these two recent large snowfalls, I came home from the church office to find my sidewalks all snowblowed. Now, I always, I always shovel out the driveway in the morning so the cars can come and go, but I always leave the sidewalks for later in the afternoon. And I found out that they were all, they were all snowblowed. Well, right away, I thought it was my son-in-law who'd done it, so I, so I texted him and said, hey, thanks for doing the sidewalk. He said, ah, well, I didn't do it. I'm like, who did my sidewalks? This is really strange. And then pretty soon after one of these other encounters of talking to him at his window, find out that he did my sidewalks. Thank you, profusely, thank you. You don't have to, you don't have to do my sidewalks. Thank you for doing that. Come home a couple of days later, my sidewalks are done again. Did you get the message? I don't want to. On one hand, it was like, thank you so much. I didn't want to shovel all that snow. On the other hand, what, what's up, Greg? What's going on that you don't want him to shovel your sidewalks. The neighbor on the other side of me, he'll shovel his sidewalk, and when he gets up to the property line, he'll shovel all the way past the property line until my driveway. There have been times when I've been out shoveling my driveway, and he's asked me if I wanted help finishing my driveway. I've said no. I've said, I've got this. I've got it. And of course, we make a joke about it, you know, and that sort of thing, but it's like, no, no, I'm fine. Greg, what's the matter with you? Why don't you want help? What's wrong? I think part of it might be this. 
that I don't want to be indebted to someone else. I don't want him to think that I need to be shoveling his driveway. You know, I don't, I don't want, just let me shovel my driveway, you shovel your driveway, you know, sort of thing. Let's just do it that way. But I also think there might be this part where I kind of want the glory. I kind of want to do it. I want to have done it. I want, I want to shovel my driveway and I want to be happy about it. As hard as that is. <laughs> You know, and I think sometimes this is why grace is so hard for us. We want to do it ourselves. We want to do it ourselves. We don't want to be indebted, perhaps, to the Lord, or we want to do something so that we can boast. Many years ago, I was in this setting totally by the grace of God. I can't go into all the details. I think I've told this story to you before, but I ended up in Colorado Springs at the International Bible Society to help them design the study notes in the back of the student Bible that they were developing at the time. And they had a number of people from all these campus ministries, InterVarsity, Crusade, uh, the, the group that I was with and other ones, all met in Colorado Springs. On my way out to Colorado Springs, I was reading this magazine article. Rarely I look at the person who wrote the article, but if it's really good, I'll look down and see, who is this guy? I want to look for this guy. So I'm, I looked down, oh, yeah, okay, okay. Closed it, put it on my bag, left. Spent the night in Colorado Springs, got up the next morning to the meeting. I'm sitting in my chair at the meeting. I introduce myself to the guy on the left. He's the guy that wrote the article I was reading. I introduced myself to the guy on the right. He's the head of, of InterVarsity International on my right. So I'm sitting between this, this guy from the Navigators and this guy from InterVarsity, and here's little old, you know, probably 25 years old at the time, Greg. I wanted to be wise. I wanted to be smart. I wanted to be creative. I wanted to be all those things as I'm sure Mephibosheth wanted to be all those things. But all I could do in that moment is plead for God's grace. I wanted so badly to be the smart one. I wanted so badly to be the wise one. I wanted so badly to be the creative one. But all I could do was plead for God's grace. Guys, part of my reason for sharing this with you today is to hopefully show that this is the boat we're all in. This is the boat that we're all in. We might think we have some talents, abilities, giftings that that we've created or drummed up in ourselves, but really it's all from the Lord. And our salvation, even the desire to believe, even the desire to turn in his direction was from him. It's all of grace, grace upon grace upon grace. And I'm praying that this changes our hearts that we fall more deeply in love with him because of what he has done in our lives. Because he loved us. Not because we were great, not because we were qualified, not because we were deserving. Simply because he loved us. Amen? Well, why don't we stand to our feet? If you would just close your eyes and turn your thoughts to the things of the Lord shut yourself in with him. I just want to pray a couple prayers here as we close, but I want you just to be alone with the Lord, just you and the Lord, and you're shut in with him. Your eyes are closed. I know you're here today, and you've never made that commitment to follow Jesus. I know he's brought you into this place. I know Your heart is pumping and thumping right now. What is the Lord doing in my life? This is his Holy Spirit drawing you to himself. All you have to do is hold out your hand. Say, Lord, I'll receive. I'll receive your salvation. And God will bring a transformation today. You have been satisfied with cod and gruel. But the Lord has a magnificent feast waiting in the days ahead. And so, Lord, this person that's here today, 
Lord, I pray that you would intersect their path in this moment. Lord, I pray that you would show them that there is no hope without you. There's no hope in the world. They are separate from Christ. So just follow me in this prayer this morning, if that's you. You can just pray something like this to yourself inside. Lord, we want to say thank you for coming to the earth to rescue us from ourselves, from the wrath of God to come. I want to say thank you that you died on the cross for my sins in my place so that I wouldn't have to die, so that I could live forever with you in paradise. And so, Lord, take this life now. Use it in any manner you want. I take myself off the throne of my life, and I place you in your place as Lord and sovereign over my life. Lord, rule. Rule in my life afresh and anew. And let it begin today. Let your grace flow today, Lord. Let there be tangible things that you would do in this life today that they would be know, yes, I am the Lord's. So let it come. Let it come, Jesus. And then I pray for the rest of us too, Lord. Sometimes it's so easy to feel like we're in the fight by ourselves, to feel like we got to make it happen. But Lord, remind us today in the depths of our heart and in our spirit that it's because of your grace in our lives that we are what we are. That you have brought us to this very point. It's not because of men. It's not because of talents. It's not because of education. It's not because of gifting. It's because of your grace in our lives. And Lord, let it cause us to fall deeper and deeper in love with you. Lord, let it be the case for me and let it be the case for these that have gathered here today with me. Now send us out, Lord, we pray, in your service. Let us not only receive grace for ourselves, but let us give grace to a dying world. And we just pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So guys, this is how we're going to end today. Pastor Nathan is going to play a few songs. If you want to just solidify some of the things that the Lord's doing in your heart this morning, you just feel free to remain behind. We're going to have some prayer teams up here. If anybody wants prayer, you can receive prayer. If you've made a decision to follow Jesus this morning, I'd love to pray with you. I'm going to be right down here at the front. Come down, share with me what the Lord did, and we'll pray together. The rest, God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.